Hi, this is Tamson Granger. And this is Dan Abuhoff. With Tamson and Dan, read the paper on Wednesday, August 9th, 2023. Very good. Happy birthday, Bob. Bob's, yes. I won't say how old Bob is. Bob may be listening. He knows how old he is. Bob's your older brother. Right. I saw Bob on his birthday. Yeah. Which is a good thing. Sent and, him a and card. Just, and you saw your cousin George. I said, yes, Cousin George. And so you the, had quite the family and, week. And I was the youngest guy of the three of us. I had, I had it like that. You were the baby. I was the baby. It doesn't happen a lot. But uh, yeah, so uh, good to catch up with Bob. Um, and uh, we've got a lot going on. We've been uh, globe hopping. We're back from Bluff Island just a couple of days. Globe hopping? Globe hopping. Globe hopping? Yeah, it sounds good. Back from Block Island, getting, you know, when you come back from Block Island, there is a uh, decompress or press period, depending what you, how you want to describe it. I mean, Block Island is such a different universe. Right. So you different... have some culture shock. Yeah. That's, that's one way to describe it. Culture shock. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So uh, we've been adjusting. And yet, here we are, uh, ready to do our next podcast. We're on the ball, on the beam. Uh, okay, so well, I'm I'm still doing laundry, so you're you're going to have to take the lead. I can do that on uh, this podcast. All right. Also, laundry and cooking, because the uh, CSA we belong to is really cranking up the volume. Really, on uh, the amount of produce we're getting, so I'm you know going like crazy trying to use it all up you made the beet salad last night although no no, no. Uh, i made beet salad two nights ago what we have last, last night, night was uh oh yeah yeah, yeah yeah zucchini and corn fritters right and of course there was somebody who was making the big omelets that go with that i think i participated in that way yes mr omelet yeah we've been eating well yes uh, somebody on block island gave us some eggs yeah that they had brought from new some jersey like what's called a whole flat of eggs we have a flat of eggs well, it's sort of from a farmer in New Jersey. Right, yeah. So since they were what I would think of as real eggs, yeah. uh, we had to backhaul them to Pennsylvania from Block Island. We filled our to car use with eggs. Yeah. I mean, eggs last a long time. Yeah. Eggs are, that egg is a great packaging system. Mm-hmm. Till you crack it. Till you crack it. Then you're in trouble. Yeah, you can't put it back together. Um, okay, so... So we're doing fine. We're doing fine. The actors and writers out in New well, uh, yeah. LA are not so much. I don't know how long that's going to last. I don't know. They both have arguments. I can't believe that each side believes in all their arguments, uh, but I'm not going to take that apart. What's more interesting to me is that uh, I caught an article uh, about actors uh, using their time instead of acting, uh, putting uh, their voices and faces to work on cameo cameo so you might say what's cameo and cameo is the outfit that um, has all these entertainers uh, registered uh, who are offering to do little messages uh, like personal live messages audio and recorded messages that for a fee right right it's not like uh, the old, uh, you know, personalized e-cards. No, this where is there would be time. some kind of routine, and they, you know, stick in. You know, yeah, your the name. You know, it, you know, you'd have somebody singing a song, and they'd stick in Bob, right, right or whatever. This is 
personally put together. Right. I mean, I for a specific. I used uh, cameo for uh, Harry's birthday, Harry Zerlin's birthday, and I got uh, Andy Chavez, who was a player for the Mets, uh, and he was wonderful. I mean, all I had to do was put in a little information about what Harry might be interested in, and I left it up to Andy. And Andy uh, created a real personal message to Harry about his birthday. which And even was, dressed appropriately. Yeah, he had a t-shirt uh, focusing on the uh, the play, the baseball play that knew Harry would be interested in. And uh, it was I was delighted. Harry was delighted. It was really striking. I think Harry said to me he, he was suspicious when he first saw it, that he thought it was sort of computer animated. He didn't think that was the real Andy. Uh, but it was. So So how does that work? Well, uh, what happens is you see this whole roster of uh, candidates who you might hire and you scroll through and it's a pretty nice index. They have actors, they have athletes, etc. And each of them has chosen uh, what they demand for their time. In other words, they might be charging $100 for a message, might be charging $200 to do a message, whatever they charge. Uh, and clearly, you know, it's it's more money. Uh, depending on how famous and desirable that person is. Um, what, what prompted this was an article uh, in which Cheyenne, focusing on Cheyenne Jackson. Cheyenne Jackson, to my mind, is a pretty well-known Broadway actor. I know he's on television also. We saw him in Finian's Rainbow. Um, so he's a name, in, in, my, in my view. And uh, he says he's doing this, uh, or he had an account, but he reactivated it. You know, because he's got to make money, you know, in the downtime. They can't be doing television or doing anything else. It's a way to make money. The article, you know... In, How so, much money does he make? Well, he actually charges $95 an hour, which is, I think, low. Uh, and I'll it give can't you, be an hour. No, no, no. I, I, that was a mistake. I'm sorry. $95 a message. Okay. And, uh, and the messages are like three minutes or something like that. But even so, I can tell you... Uh, the roster of folks, um, uh, 95, that seems to be the wrong number. Uh, yeah, that's too cheap. Yeah. There are some interesting, uh, people here. I mean, um, who would be interesting? Uh, uh, Brian Cox is the star of Succession. He charges $689 for a message. All right. Richard Dreyfuss is on Cameo. He charges $599 a message. Mm-hmm. Uh, Elliot Gould, three forty nine. David Steinberg, three forty nine. Billy D. Williams, three hundred. So you get people who are not superstars at the moment, but their names, right? Mm-hmm. Parker Stevenson. You remember Parker Stevenson? Yes, He's classmate of mine. Right at at, at Princeton, two hundred fifty dollars. Uh, Wayne Newton, three hundred dollars. So, um, and yet uh, Cheyenne Jackson only ninety five. I, I think you pick your own number. And uh, that's what he picked. It's interesting, too, because I was curious when I did it, um, how much uh, does the talent get? Because surely Cameo takes a cut. Mm-hmm. Uh, they take 20, Cameo takes 25%. Okay. So the rest of it goes to the actor. But in any event, they, they interview a bunch of actors in the article that I found. And uh, Cheyenne was the only one who just said, look, I, you know, it's money. I, it's a way for me to get money. The other actors they interviewed all said, you know, I'm just trying to keep in touch with my fans, <laughs> uh, which I think means they really want the money, but but uh, whatever. Um, so there you go. I think more and more actors are going to be doing what Cheyenne Jackson is doing, and you're going to see more and more names on there at competitive prices. So I recommend it. I think, I thought the cameo thing was a big hit, 
in terms of birthday greetings. Didn't you well, think you so? Had, yes. Well, yours sounded great, and yeah. I, I saw it. Yeah. And the guy did a great job. I'm not sure everyone is going to do such a great well, job. you got to pick the right guy. You don't just pick the biggest But you know, how, how you know? How do you know? Well, I'll tell you right now, Richard Dreyfus wouldn't do a good job. I would, ne- <laughs> I would never pick Richard I mean, Dreyfuss. a lot of actors uh, are probably not great writers. Well, they're also not personalities necessarily, and, right? And, yeah. I mean, they're meant to embody something that someone else writes or puts together. Or, you or they, know, they're inspired by other people's... Or they think they're too big a deal. But, you know, do I think Elliot Gould would do a good job? Yeah. David Steinberg, yeah, those guys mm-hmm. would do all right. Wayne Newton, I wouldn't bank on. <laughs> uh, but uh, you know, you, review it at your leisure. There are birthdays coming up, tabs, and this is going to take you know the load off the QVC traffic. We're going to be uh, sending cameos. Oh, okay. And I'm glad the actors have a place to go. So, gotcha. Uh, yeah. So uh, you had a story that we were both fascinated by. That's overstating it. it I was for me, it's just kind of a nostalgic thing. Um, there was a an article in the New York Times that was actually taken from their what they call the Team T Magazine Style section or uh-huh. T Style Magazine magazine. I don't know what they call it, but anyway, it was about the Lower East Side fabric store um, Mendel Goldberg Fabrics. Mm-hmm. And it just described this shop that's been there many, 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 many years. It's uh, being uh, uh, run now by the fourth generation. Alice Goldberg uh, is uh, running it. And it's just filled with these amazing uh, fabrics. And it just uh, it was a fun article just describing how, you know, People are into it, people from all over the world. People come in. There, you know, all kinds of people come in. Uh, costume designers, uh, designer designers, and uh, you know, get inspired and uh, buy these fabulous things. And she also sells by Zoom. And uh, she's, you know, describing how she got into the business. Uh, she was teaching math. Married and living on the Upper East Side. And her father one day said, your mom's sick. She can't do it anymore. And she came to the shop and she never left. Yeah, I saw it. That's the way families used to operate. Yeah. That, that's my understanding. Now it's your turn. Yeah, right. Uh, you've, you've had a chance to... Uh, do what you wanted to do. Yeah. And, and now you're here. And, uh, you know, they and it described uh, the early days um, when her grandfather, a Jewish immigrant from Poland sold tailoring supplies. Maybe it wasn't her grandfather. Maybe even her great-grandfather. And then his son sold silk to furriers for coat linings. Mm -hmm. And then his son, uh, Alice's father, uh, started selling fabric to Gimbel's and Macy's. Uh, And, you know, they're very successful. Family lived out in uh, Great Neck. Yeah, well, that's that point. you'd have to be successful living right. great neck in those right. years. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, you know, the person who's writing this at the end says, uh, I was thinking about a new winter coat. Alice showed me this beautiful navy blue uh, French wool boucle and suggested we line it in printed cashmere. That does sound pretty yummy. Okay. It doesn't sound like any coat you see on the on the rack. And uh, the main reason I enjoyed uh, the article was it did remind me of 
the Lower East Side sure. and shopping in the Lower East Side. Now, I never bought dress fabric down there, but several times, and I can't remember the name of the shop. I went to a particular um, popular, successful shop, and, prob- and that was in the 70s. So probably at that point, things were pretty dwindling, mm-hmm. and uh, some of these shops are just hanging on. And, you know, bought some pretty cool fabric for several different reupholstering projects that we did. I actually bought the yardage and then gave it to the people who were doing the reupholstering. And uh, I don't know if you remember, we had one couch that was oddly covered in, uh, I had to make slipcovers out of this navy blue kind of Asian print with fish on it. Uh, stuff like that. Uh, so, and I used to love going down there because you really did see things you wouldn't see in any store, um, and that you wouldn't see with the, you know, um, one way people do upholstery is they come to your house and they bring you a book of fabrics and it's, you know, it's usually pretty, um, not exciting stuff, you know, normal, um, yeah, sort of a st- popular, standard, popular yeah. standard stuff. Limited range. Yeah. Okay. So uh, that brought, you know, just kind of a nostalgia. Well, first nostalgia of all, story for I was just surprised that a place like that still exists. Things have changed so much. That you still have a Lower East Side store like that. So that impressed me. I mean, and they said they'd never had a return, which is crazy. She's never had she's a return. She's never had a return. Well, she's yeah, been there everybody's a long happy. Time. Everybody's yeah. happy with what she sells them. Mm. Yeah. I thought you were going to bring up the... Uh, wi- the Brazier wi- shop? Yes. No, but that's a whole different kind of business. Okay. Um, Again, talking about fabric shop here. on the Lower East Side. Yeah, well, I mean, Brazier shops are fun places anyway. They still exist not even on the Lower East Side. And, and it, you know, when you have a good Brazier salesperson, oh, yes. um, that's what makes the shop go. It doesn't have to be Jewish. It doesn't have to be on the Lower East Side. Uh, been to them other places, and uh, but you know, uh, you know, you've you've told the story many times of how um, we went to this one place, and uh, this woman really, you know, she takes charge. She's not shy, and you know, and, yeah, she uh, looked at it's you quite a and she physical said, examination. She said, "What are you? Uh, whatever, whatever. I'm not going to give the numbers out. A blanky blank, uh, you know, whatever uh, number in the letter." And then uh, when you hesitated, she reached in. And she said, yeah, yeah, I think so. So, so that was, uh, that's when I left. I said, I'll, I'll be outside. I'll be outside. I'll, you know. Why? So I don't even know why I brought you along. Maybe we were just wandering around. We were doing other things. And right? we uh, we popped in there. You used to bring me along everywhere. So there I was. Oh, outside, really? Outside on the side. I took you shopping? <laughs> well, then we must have had other You business. must have been very much in love. <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, after the, after the Brazier shop, I was more interested. All right, so there was an article about... Um, uh, about we mentioned last po- podcast that uh, you still can't go two pages through the New York Times. No, no, I'm not on that. No, no, not you're not on, on that. that. You're, you're jumping ahead. You know, bated breath. Hold on. Before we get into that. Oh, okay. There's, we wanted to talk about an article about NFL retirement speeches. And which is, uh, what does that mean? That means the NFL had their Hall of Fame in, induction uh, recently, and uh, you know they have it every year about this time. It's usually about six or seven people being inducted, uh, maybe a couple more. Usually, a couple are deceased, but that means you need you know five or six speeches uh, by the inductees. And these guys are football players; they're not speakers. Right? Some of them are, right. but they're not all Peyton Manning. 
So um, they're not all litigators. Then they're not all litigators. So they're uh, they've had some retirement t- speeches are always a a problem. Okay, so this kind of resonated with me since I just gave a retirement speech a few years ago. But you're a speaker. Well, uh, uh, you're a teacher. You're a litigator. Let, let me, you're used me, to speaking. Let me just say right now, the point of this story isn't for you to say what a great speaker I am. I, I didn't say you were good. I said you were a speaker. Okay. So what happens is these guys come in. And they feel strongly about giving a speech in particular, and this is all laudable. They want to thank everybody. That's the kind of speech they want to give. They want to thank their high school coach. They want to thank their second grade teacher and then work their way up. So uh, they initially were given 15 minutes. Each person was told 15 minutes. And even then, they would run over. Okay? Right. And uh, so there was one ceremony two or three years ago where Ray Lewis was being inducted. He went on for 33 minutes. Mm-hmm. The whole ceremony lasted four hours. And people were leaving, quite apart from the viewers on television, <laughs> turning it off. People were leaving. And before other you know, right. people later in line got to speak. So they were quite alarmed about that. Uh, and it's one of those articles where they're saying, so they're trying to solve the problem. But you read this and you realize they haven't solved the problem. And they've told folks that they want to, uh, they lowered the number. They said, it's not 15 minutes, it's 8 to 10 minutes. And the article focuses on a woman who was hired to help them write their speeches. And so, you know, she explains what she does for people. And mostly, you know, she's cutting. Uh, First of all, she makes them write out their speech, their entire speech. And drafted and redrafted and redrafted. And the speech that was just given a week ago, she starts working with them in the spring. Uh, and when someone has 12 minutes, she says it's twice as long as it has to be and so on. And she's really supposedly... Well, what's her name? I was, was going to give it to you. Hold on. You're going to go on about her. Oh, uh, yeah. You're going to have to uh, say da, 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 Jezra Kay is her name. Okay. And she's totally not qualified for this. They, they, they're excited <laughs> about the fact that she is... Um, they say she's a writing coach, but her only background is in jazz or something like that. I, I don't know why... She's doing this. Um, okay. All right. So there's no no point. But so don't... Uh, I, I'm not saying she doesn't know what she's doing, but uh, she's yeah. not like a speech expert. In any event, she's... Uh, somebody knew somebody. And uh, she's videotaping and rehearsing them. And uh, she tells them half of this has to go. And she does make the point to them, which is obviously true, that if you prune it, uh, what you do say has that much more impact, which of course is the case. So she has, her guidance boils down to three messages according to this article. One, don't go off script. So they've done the script and they've worked it, they've worked it, they've worked it, and stick with the script. Two, stories that sound great to football players don't always land for a TV audience. Okay. And three, jokes generally don't work, particularly if they take too long to set up. All right, so I don't think any of those rules make any sense, but they they might make sense for the people she's dealing with. I can't say, and, and they and they mentioned some successes she's had, although she, one is kind of mixed. Tom Flores, who was a coach, who was an older guy, he's eighty four when he was uh, inducted a couple of years ago, really whittled it down, and he had some interesting story that they all liked, but he was sticking to the script. And then what happens to some people is he got emotional in the middle of it, and they like couldn't continue. So it took him a while to get his bearings back, and he, he got lost, and he got in. So that that there is a little bit of that. I mean, some people can get lose the thread of it, and uh, well, maybe all they're looking for is somebody with enough uh, wherewithal 
to tell these guys they have to cut down their yeah, speech the problem is, to get them to write it down. Yeah, the problem is uh, it's twofold. One is they had seven people being inducted and only two of them used their services. So I don't understand why they have the article. And number two oh. is I don't believe in any of this. My view is you give an extemporaneous speech. I mean, it, it, to read a speech to me is deadly. But uh, but but as you say before, these are not experienced speakers. Uh, so that may be the lesser evil. I think the advice about, uh, you know, take your audience into consideration is worthwhile. Well, for sure. I mean, you know, for sure. Yeah. But, but what do you and, think about the idea that they keep reading and reading and reading the speech until they're ready to read it in front of the audience? I mean, that's that strikes me as well, not a recipe for success. Well, I think what would be preferable is uh, they read it and read it and read it until they can recite it. In front of the audience. Even reciting it is not great. But, uh, uh, you know, if they could possibly memorize it. Well, I, I don't really believe in also reading speeches either. Yeah. Uh, it, when they're personal. Uh, because it just doesn't seem that sincere. Right. Right. And that, 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 you lose your audience. Though. Yeah. Um, they actually came up with some creative ideas. They, they told some people, keep your speech short. We'll have a scroll underneath of, on the screen of all the names of all the people you want to thank. Mm-hmm. So you don't have to thank people. That didn't catch on. Really. <laughs> they said also, we, 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 you can have a longer speech on the website and give a shorter speech here. That apparently hasn't caught on either. So uh, I don't know. Yeah, you really want to stand up there and thank your mom. Well, you do. Look, I, I can tell you that there's a little more to it from my own experience, than, you, than meets the eye. What I would have thought it was simple as pie. It's not exactly simple as pie. but uh, And there are a lot of elements to it, and, and there are strong feelings. Uh, and you also don't want to be rude to people. You want to acknowledge people in a fair way. You don't want people right. to feel that they've been shorted. You're also not out to get a, give a great speech. Oh, I don't know. No, I don't think so. I think it's a situation where you want to... where they're right. They want to... Thank the right people. They want to make sure they've uh, made their gratitude known. Well, some of these guys might have something they, they, to they're say. They're not trying to change the world. Well, but they might have something to say. They might have something to say about football. They might have something to say about what football meant to them. They might have something to say about what football's become. Uh, if they have strong feelings, and I'm making this up. Boy, that's opening a can of worms. It is. In any event... Uh, I, I doubt they'll be opening those cans. So I, I actually, they did have the uh, ceremony a few days ago or something. And I didn't watch it. So all right, tell me about the bear. The bear. What uh, about well, the bear now? Uh, there's look. There's a million articles of the bear. I, we've mentioned the bear. The bear. It really is worth watching if you haven't watched it. Uh, and of course, it's the uh, show about the restaurant in Chicago. Uh, and almost every article is positive. Not many, to the extent that you have. Not that many are negative. To the extent there is negativity, and here is one, a Wall Street Journal article, uh, what the bear says about the work-life revolution. Uh, This touches on the one vestige of negativity, although it's a a somewhat balanced article on it. And what the article says, and I think correctly, uh, is that the the characters in the bear, and they all have their own stories. They come from different places. And they have different experiences, but uh, they are benefited by the structure and the challenge and the accomplishment associated with work. As they say here, here's the quote, work provides purpose, a conviction expressed by uh, Carmi's cousin Richie, a scruffy holdover, 
Uh, it goes on and on. It, it, he actually has perhaps the most compelling story in that connection is a guy who's kind of drifting. And work really kind of saves him. He finds a certain purpose in work. And that's, that's true of all of them to some degree. Um, as, as they say later in the article, everyone's in. No one's quiet quitting. The bear soars when it depicts the chemistry of a frantic workplace with camaraderie and a common goal. There is no place these characters would rather be, no people they'd rather be with. And I think that does resonate. And it certainly, it, it is very important to the characters. And, and there are characters who are troubled and the work helps them. I mean, you're looking at me, you agree with that or you don't agree? Yeah, I, I mean, I, um, of course, I've, I've had some uh, food service jobs right more than and uh but the, and food service is not the only uh place where you find it there is you know work can be incredibly fulfilling and satisfying right. even when it's dirty even when uh you know there's nothing pretty about how uh you're dealing with your coworkers, uh even when you're killing yourself and working some long hours and you make it through i mean uh we used to, uh, you know, uh, Linda McClellan and I, you know, just uh, cranking out, uh, you know, hundreds of sandwiches for some event or something right. like that. Uh, and th- th- there was nothing, you know, romantic about it. And we were working our butts off uh, and just the feeling of getting through that. And we were probably also screaming at each other a lot of the time. You know, you're not... Uh, it ain't pretty. It ain't pretty. You don't want to see how the sausage is made right. in a lot of jobs. And yet, uh, at the end of the day, uh, you feel a sense of satisfaction. You feel um, you feel good about yourself you in I mean, a way that you thing. don't feel when you're sitting with your feet up uh, watching the QVC. Right. You know, I mean, uh, there. Um, I think there are a lot of... Uh, good things come out of bad jobs sometimes. And, and I'm not saying uh, food service is a bad job. It just is. Um, I, what I like about this show is it, you know, um, shows, uh, I don't know, the positive aspects of, you know, hard, dirty work. Right. So, and I said at the beginning, you know, the article touches on the, the slight negativity. And this this fellow, Jason Gay, uh, doesn't really sort this out particularly well in my mind. But then he gets into the negativity. He says, but the problem is, you know, is it, is it toxic in the sense that it threatens the work-life balance that we all value today? Is it anachronistic? Is it celebrating something whose time has passed? And he doesn't resolve that. He just says, so I'm, I'm, I'm a little concerned about this. Other people concerned about this. I don't want to go back to those days. We shouldn't go back to those days of workaholics. Well, look, uh, I, I think that's silly in this sense. I don't think the, the bear is celebrating any kind of abuse of work-life balance. The characters will seek their own work-life balance. They're just identifying the satisfaction that's associated with work. Mm-hmm. You know, whether uh, that, however they balance it is almost a completely different story, which is mm-hmm. not something that the show goes into. There's no work-life balance issues. I mean, to the extent that Carmi, the main character, has issues, they're not work-like balance. They're serious issues. So, um, but that, that, that's, that's the pushback on it. They say, gee, you're celebrating work in a culture where people, we don't celebrate work like that anymore. Mm-hmm. That's wrong. 
I mean, mm-hmm. I, I think you have to recognize the value of work, even if you, you're set out to uh, put boundaries on it. You have to recognize the value of work, and and uh, and they do demonstrate that in a very visceral way. It's a very interesting series. Right, there is something uh, I don't know. Again, positive about being uh, obsessed. Yeah, right. <laughs> about your work to to a certain extent. Well, the best thing is to be obsessed with work at work, and then be obsessed with home at home. I mean, that that's what we all strive for. Yeah, but uh, and it's not undoable. Certainly, nothing. It's not undoable. Number one and number two, there's nothing that the bear says it's undoable. So, uh, I think there the concern is wrongly based. But in any event, uh, very good series. Sad, yeah, it's a sadder thing when you have a job you can't, you know, muster any enthusiasm. Right, that's the real tragedy. If obsession. You, if you just, yeah, yeah, if you just feel and even. The negative aspects are not even the worst part. I mean, it's sometimes it's good to have a boss to hate, you know, yeah. and commiserate about and so on. Right. So that's the thing. There are, there are jobs that are very unglamorous in the bear. But as they, but by the end of it, everyone recognizing their role and contributing in, in, uh, in this kind of common enterprise rewards everyone. Right. Okay. Uh, and a lot of them are doing unglamorous things a lot of the time, but they don't, they're not reflecting on that. They're all, all in on getting something done. And I think it's, you know, to people, to the extent that people fail to recognize the value of that, they're making a big mistake. Uh, all right. So there was an article about, um, Van Moof. So you're going to say, what's Van Moof? Van Moof is one of the biggest, uh, e-bike makers. They're in the Netherlands, but traditionally they have been one of the biggest e-bike makers. And, um... They've sold uh, 200,000 e-bikes uh, over the last few years, uh, and now they're going bankrupt, which is uh, almost surprising, according to this article, because people love their e-bikes. Um, and uh, the problem is, and this is true of e-bikes generally, they do break down. Uh, it's not like uh, it's something about the technology which you know, makes it vulnerable to breakdowns. And what makes it worse is that um, it's very hard to fix an e-bike. And what I mean by that is you can't go to your bike shop to get your e-bike fixed. They just can't handle it. They don't do it. It's a different kind of technology. Uh, In particular, in the case of Van Moof, because Van Moof has relied upon proprietary parts. They make their own parts. They're not using standard off-the-shelf parts. So the only way to get a Van Moof bicycle repaired is to go to a Van Moof shop, and now they're bankrupt, and now they're closed. So people feel they're up a creek? Yeah. I mean, the company issued a statement which said that, you know, we'll continue to service, and these people will continue to service, but there's a lot of anxiety about that well but this just gives an opportunity for people to develop the expertise yeah, and open businesses that's true but you need uh, the parts you need the parts and they have to promise to continue to provide the parts because you know, somebody's gonna um make the parts well you look you know in, in the auto industry uh there are all kinds of uh, alternative parts suppliers i mean right. when you go to aftermarket those, parts exactly when you go to those stores uh, napa they've got napa brand parts they're not relying on the parts made by uh, chrysler so um uh, i don't know if uh, e-bike is going to foster that kind of support but you can see why they're concerned we've we've seen uh, you know z kind of e-bike very difficult to get it repaired and and they're not inexpensive right so you worry about that Okay, another I'm worried. Thing to, another I'm worried. thing to worry about. All right, so I have one other thing that I'm going to leave it to you. 
to talk about a story which uh, did fascinate us both. But uh, we had mentioned before that Anna Netrebko was uh, in a dispute with the Metropolitan Opera, uh, having to do with their not uh, hiring her or not having, not being willing to put her on the stage because she's Russian, and on top of that, she's Russian, and she hasn't disavowed Putin. She's, uh, as a matter of fact, traditionally or historically, she had been a supporter of Putin. And as far as the Met's concerned, they're not putting her on a stage uh, until, uh, according to uh, the uh, head of the Met, uh, until she uh, cuts ties with Putin um, in a very serious way or the Ukraine wins the war. And, um, you know, She's, uh, you know, obviously up in arms about that. Now, their position, the position of the Met is so, uh, so strong that initially uh, they uh, refused to perform a contract. They, had, uh, they, they were obligated to pay her for certain performances. Uh, and she had to sue them for $200,000 because they canceled 13 performances that they had contracted for. And they said uh, they shouldn't have to pay it because she refused to comply with the company's demand that she denounce Putin. And that violated their uh, conduct clause. Most contracts have a moral turpitude clause, uh, which says that uh, the other party can get out of the contract if someone does something that reeks of moral turpitude. That's the legal term. Which which is a stupid position to take. I mean, the, the fact that she's Russian doesn't mean that's the, you know, uh, that, that she's uh, has violated the conduct clause. And in fact, the arbitrator found that. So the Met owed $200,000. But Netrepko is going farther than that. She's saying, listen, um, there was a lot of talk. We had discussed a whole bunch of additional performances. And they're just saying, uh, but we're not following through on that because uh, you haven't denounced Putin. And that seems wrong to me. So that's her new lawsuit. Um is trying to get some kind of compensation for uh, their failing to follow through on performances discussed and what she calls defamation of character by saying she's an awful person because she doesn't denounce Putin. Uh, you know, she's going to lose that lawsuit. But um, but you can understand why she's ticked off. I mean, it is, uh, the Mets taken an extremely it's just difficult weird. position. How do you um, not hire somebody because of their political beliefs or because of what you assume are their political beliefs and how do you make demands um, that they should make certain statements? I mean, it just, uh, it sounds a little backward. Well, it, it is in line with certain people's approach to certain problems. I mean, again, we're talking about Peter Gelb, who's the general manager of the Met. And here's the quote. It's more important than ever that our position does not change until the war is won by Ukraine. He thinks that's what he's supposed to be doing, and he thinks that he's in charge of that kind of thing. Um, it does seem, again, I, I don't think Netrepko wins the lawsuit, but uh, I agree with you. I don't understand uh, who Gelb thinks he's running the world here. It's not the, the world. The world doesn't really have to conform to the Metropolitan Opera's political beliefs, even even if we all are aligned with the Ukraine, when we tend to be, you know, no supporters of Putin it in this room. should be room for people who are not. Yeah, and she's a performer. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. But she, he's, they're very strong on it. They're out front on it. That's crazy. All right, go ahead. Well, we're going to finish up with an interesting story from Canada. Mm, already a contradiction. Yes. Switched as newborns 
two Canadians discover their roots at age 67. Okay. A revelation of genetic testing has forced the men to question who they really are. Mm-hmm. So there are um, two babies. Um, well, I don't know. Maybe I should start out the way the, the article starts out. Uh, a guy, um, Richard Beauvais, uh, you know, always, uh, you know, grown up, you know, believing he was, uh, you know, uh, Metis or part indigenous, uh, and, uh, part French or whatever, mm-hmm. Canadian. And uh, his daughter is very interested in this. And she's, you know, she's, she's very, she wants to know more about her background. And uh, she's even, you know, considering getting an indigenous tattoo and so on. Mm-hmm. So she urges her father to, you know, take an at-home DNA test. And it turns out he is not at all. Not at all. No indigenous or French background, but a mix of Ukrainian, Ashkenazi, Jewish, and Polish ancestry. Mm-hmm. And he, you know, he's kind of flabbergasted, all right? So he just assumes it's a mistake and goes about his business, all right? Um, and uh, meanwhile, uh, there's this other guy who has been brought up as Ukrainian and... Uh, for some reason, he or someone in his family uh, has a DNA test, and he finds out he's Metis. <laughs> he's indigenous or yeah. part indigenous. Okay, and he's flabbergasted. He, you know, he's been singing Ukrainian folk songs all his life. You know, and uh, so you go deeper into it, and you have two entirely different upbringings. Apparently, the babies were switched accidentally in the hospital Mm -hmm. many years ago. And uh, Richard Beauvais, uh, the guy who thought he was indigenous, you know, um, his father, he lives in very poor circumstances. His father dies at a young age. He and his his siblings uh, end up living with his grandparents who die. He's trying to, his mother is in a bad way. She doesn't speak any English. She keeps to herself. We don't even know all the problems she has. He's basically at age eight or nine raising the family. Um, and then in swoops the government yeah. and says you have to, you know, and and fosters out all right. the kids. Right. So that, I mean, that makes sense anyway. You know, you, usually but it, but still, some agency is going yeah. to find out the kids are, are um, yeah, you gotta do that. living by themselves and that would happen. But it was also part of a big um, swoop or something they called it where uh, there was uh, this big motivation to... Uh, take indigenous children uh, away from their parents, even if they were their parent, were with their original parents, etc., mm-hmm. and farm them out with the hope of getting them better upbringings. Mm-hmm. Uh, feeling that uh, you know an indigenous upbringing was going to be subpar, etc. Um, and so anyway, fortunately, Beauvais ends up with a good family, a loving family, and uh, you know. He has a good upbringing, but he loses all his, he grows up speaking French and Cree. And uh, when he moves in with uh, this other family, 
his foster family, he loses all that. So he only speaks English now. Mm-hmm. Uh, meanwhile, the the other guy grows up with uh, you know a comfortable Ukrainian family. He's the only boy um, in the family. He has a very close relationship with his father. Uh, very you know very loving. He has a really uh, great upbringing. Now, eventually, uh, Beauvais, the um, indigenous, the actually indigenous, you know, the the guy who's Ukrainian who's, who's but brought up as indigenous, yeah. indigenous, becomes a commercial fisherman. He develops a welding business. He's quite successful. He makes a life for himself, and he has a wonderful family, and he says, I would never do it any other way. If I could go back and change time, I wouldn't. All right. Um, but uh, Ambrose is, uh, you know, who was raised uh, Ukrainian Catholic, is looking back and he's he's actually trying to um, get recognition as indigenous and trying to get the grants that go with being yeah, so that, indigenous, This is the thing that, that kind of struck me as funny because uh, to the credit of, uh, I'm going to get the name from Beauvais, um, he has a tough upbringing, which they both acknowledge. That was a much tougher upbringing. But he seems to get through it uh, well. And he talks about the wonderful family he has in terms of children and grandchildren. And he has uh, no regrets. And he, you know, he's cool. The other fellow who had the very good upbringing, um, you know, I guess is doing all many right. advantages. Right. Well, but, but I don't know. The article doesn't, doesn't mention, say, doesn't say what doesn't he's, say he's doing. doing well. yeah. It just says he has a nice upbringing. It just says he's really into... Uh, Trying to get grants. Yeah, but let me get to that. So, yeah. that, that, you know, that's that. That's what gives you a sour taste with that guy because, you know, he wasn't raised with any disadvantage associated with the indigenous population that gives rise to those grants. So he just says, gee, I got a DNA test. Now I'd like some money. Um, and again, that's the article. Even and, though the article says he acknowledges that he has never suffered discrimination right. as a medicine. Right. So I, I'm not... I'm not getting involved in that dispute. He'll get the money or he won't. I don't care. But but uh, it does give you a little negative feeling about that guy. That's the guy who had the advantages. And now what do they have to say about him in the present? He's going to try to get some money. So that, that puts him in a little negative light. Uh, by contrast with the other fellow who actually had the disadvantages. And he's happy he had it worked out. So that, it's, a funny, it's a funny juxtaposition of situations there. And it's an interesting story. I mean... Uh, they don't explain why the babies were, were switched, but, you know, that could they, happen. Yeah, they tried to contact the hospitals. The hospital says, we don't have any records going no back kidding. that far. No kidding. <laughs> no kidding. So, but it just, uh, once again, you know. Movie. Oh, might be interesting. Yeah. There only, the, you know, there wasn't a writer's strike. But, you know, it's a, it, the, um, the whole swoop thing in uh, removing children from their... Well, that's, uh, a, that's original a, homes. But that was referred to in those Louise Penny. Yeah, I, look, uh, I understand. Show and books, that but I saw. thought it was kind of a gratuitous reference. Is it really not this story? Because you know, it made the eight-year-old raising the family that was not going to fly. I mean, he you have to foster that family out. There's not much argument with that, right? But you could see um, a situation where there might have been an effort to find him a family that was more like his own. Maybe, but uh, I don't know. I don't know how easy that is. Anyway, um, yeah, I, I just thought that was kind of gratuitously brought in. I, I don't think that's this story. But anyway, um, 
let's go back to Cameo for a second. So here's my idea about Cameo, okay? What I think makes a lot of sense is that they would have cartoon characters that kids are excited about who could do birthday greetings. Doesn't that make sense to you? But one would think that already is available. I it, I looked on Cameo. I only found one or two examples. You can get but what What about in another business? Maybe you can get Thomas the Tank Engine for twenty five dollars. <laughs> what do you think about that? Well, I know that some uh, that actors are worried that AI yeah will do that. Actually, yeah, but it's not there the, will be businesses that pretend to be. Well, that's not them, an act, that's not and, an actor's issue. That that's really a studio issue because they own the rights to that. The actors don't own the rights to that. Oh, although, although they have uh, the guy, the fellow named Jim Cummings, who does the voice of Winnie the Pooh, who's willing to do a birthday greeting uh, with uh, holding Winnie the Pooh bear while he gives you the Winnie the Pooh voice. He might be courting that might legal be, problems. Yeah, that might be confusing. To a child. Yeah, we'd have to see that. Why I, doesn't Wendy talk for himself? I don't know. But what can I is is uh, Hazi into Thomas the Tank Engine? Let's go. We got to go. Okay. Enough blabbering about. All this right. is Tamson Granger and Dan Apuha with Tamson to Dan read the paper. We'll see you when we see you. Yeah.